Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, uh, Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. We're here today with Dr. Sagar Kalahasti. Yeah. Uh, who's in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. That's correct. And Dr. Eric Roselli, uh, cardiac Hi. surgery. And we're going to talk with these two experts about aortic disease. Uh, both of you are very focused on this, this disorder. So yes. when we talk about aortic disease, what are we talking about, uh, Dr. Collins? Yeah, one of the main things that we talk about aortic disease is um, aneurysms are one of the most important things. Um, aneurysm is such a dangerous term. Uh, when patients Google aneurysm, all kinds of dangerous things come up on, um, on Google. It's a very scary term, but at the same time, there are different grades uh, with regards to aneurysm. Um, and patients most often come here um, mainly because of worries about what could happen uh, when they have an aneurysm. Yeah. And of course, many physicians are going to see these patients uh, in their practices, and they've got to understand you know, when, when should these patients be referred, what testing should be done. So. Uh, let me ask you a few, both of you, a few questions about mm-hmm. this. First of all, are there heritable forms of this disorder? Do you see does this run in families? What do you, what do you, what do you know about the, the genetics and the, the heritability of this? Yeah, can, so... Can I, can I handle this? Sure. Because yeah. I'd like to actually go back and, and yeah. expound a little on the first question. Yes. About what are we talking about when we talk yeah. about aortic disease? Yes. I think that we're gaining an appreciation that we're actually talking about a whole bunch of different diseases, mm-hmm. a bunch of degenerative processes yeah. that come to a funnel at a similar kind of presentation that is aneurysm sure. or dissection. Yeah. And that's why a lot of times people will lump together dissection and aneurysm because they often happen in concert, although they are different processes. Yeah. If we step back and as we're starting to understand really what those fundamental processes are that leading that are leading to it, some are certainly genetically triggered yes. causes mm-hmm. for this degenerative process. Some are probably something that's um, acquired from exposure from various things. For example, even some of the giant cell aortitis sort of um, etiologies we see, we suspect maybe even acquired from something in the community or some ex- infectious disease exposure mm-hmm. or something. Atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis, of yep. course. And so all of those are a bunch of different diseases that come together to cause. Absolutely. Yeah, so going back to the second question about genetic diseases, one of the most common ones that we do here is uh, Marfan syndrome. You know, the, the cardinal feature of the disease is aortic aneurysm. And we have a specialized center that takes care of patients with Marfan syndrome as one of them. But there are many other forms of genetic diseases, such as Lewis Deed syndrome. Um, bicuspid aortic valve is another very common um, congenital heart disease, I would say, the most common adult congenital form of heart disease, which has a high association with aortic disease and aortic aneurysms. But not all of them are syndromic. Sure. So, uh, you know, a lot of people come to us and maybe even have been diagnosed with Marfan syndrome in the 90s, and we found out now they actually have what we what we now know is Lewis Deed syndrome. Yeah, so yeah. we've gotten smarter. We've right? gotten smarter. We screen currently we're screening for about 23 genetic abnormalities that yes. we know of, some of which do have other syndromic-like features, and many of whom don't. Uh, so let me ask you: when you when these patients first present, do you always uh, get genetic uh, uh, screening in these patients? 
Um, I, I get the genetics counselor to see all my patients who are under the age of 60. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that gives us the benefit of trying to gather some data about a family tree and exposure, although, as you know, with, with doing that for other cardiovascular diseases, most of us don't know how anyone beyond one generation really died. Right. But it's still helpful. Yeah. And, um, uh, and now uh, insurance companies are more often actually allowing us to pay for that screening panel that we get, that 23-gene screening panel. So let me yeah. try to understand this a little bit better. Um, does the genetics drive how you manage these patients? Yeah, you know, if you have a family history where they had had dissection at a young age and, you know, genetic mutations are found in those, we are more aggressive with their treatments, you know, not just medical but surgical treatments, um, you know, at the, where we intervene on is much higher. So you higher. operate earlier in, in yeah. these, some of these syndromes? If someone has a TGF-beta receptor abnormality, the guidelines tell us to operate on their aortic root when it's in the four to four and a half centimeter range. And so, yeah, that's very a very clear example of it. On the other hand, um, also this this genetic information and familial information drives the way that we plan diagnostic follow-up or imaging of family members. So I think it very much guides our treatment more than it ever has. Hopefully as we learn more, we'll be able to sort of tailor that even better. And we'll have sort of personalized medicine kind of approach. So let's talk about this. You mm-hmm. know, somebody uh, sees a patient uh, and uh, Typically, how are these patients come to medical attention? What's the, what's the, how, how are we finding these? That's people? a great question. Uh, with the number of imaging tests that we do these days and the screening uh, evaluation we do perhaps for a lung nodule for lung cancer screening, or we do calcium scoring um, for uh, cardiovascular disease screening, we are actually detecting more and more patients come to us. Asymptomatic aneurysms. Um, at smaller sizes, right above the threshold of what we would call as, um, you know, aneurysm. So that's probably yeah, the most that common. Where do you, where do you, where do you... Anything, anything greater than four centimeters? Would you agree? Um, I agree? You know, you know, more than four centimeters. I think is uh, ascending yeah, aorta or the aortic root. Adjust those thresholds for the for the patient's size. Yeah, that's a great question. It used to be adjusted for primarily body surface area, and one of the biggest caveats is body surface area incorporates patient's body weight, which can fluctuate. And sometimes, you know, adjusting to body surface area may not be. (laughs) Well, if weight goes up, your index goes Goes down. down. And using that as a way to index means your risk goes down if you get fatter. That doesn't make any sense. sense. So we have good data from our group that demonstrates height is an important tool for indexing. And it's been validated even by the folks who were pushing the BSA have now kind of come on, uh, come full circle and everyone's appreciating sort of height is helpful. But still, I think in an overall sort of, you know, way of screening patients for certainly for primary care folks or anybody else that sees someone, it makes sense to raise a flag if it's more than four centimeters. I think yeah. that's a good threshold. sort of threshold for aortopathy. Yes. Right. And then it doesn't really get serious or, or you know, or necessarily warrant a surgical intervention until it gets closer to five. Now, let me ask you this. So, so somebody picks up this, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming that the majority of these people are, are, are asymptomatic. Is that correct? Yeah, the majority of them that we see, I would yeah. say so. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Even the ones you operate yeah. Even when people have symptoms, it's usually not related to their aorta. Yeah, it right. may bring it to attention, but it's probably not what's causing the symptom. Yeah. So what kind of surveillance do you then do with those people? How often do you see them? What, what tests do you get? Is there a preferred approach? Yeah, I think depending on the initial size, I think that's the primary thing. You know, depending on the initial size, you can determine the interval of follow-up. And as far as the imaging, um, you know, echo, CT, MRI are primarily the modalities that we use. Are in they, general, are they equivalent? 
they are fairly equivalent to certain segments of the aorta and in a center where they have um, special expertise in dedicatedly looking at particular segments, I think they would be comparable. I would say aortic root and ascending aorta are, are fairly well visualized in echo. But if you come to the aortic arch or descending aorta, you would have to rely on tomographic imaging like CT or MRI. Yeah, I, I think that if, the, the nice thing about echo is it's totally non-invasive. You don't even need an IV. Right. And it's easy to sort of get that sort of coordinated and paid for. Yeah. In addition, you can also look at the aortic valve. If you have valvular abnormalities, is it causing aortic valve regurgitation? Echo is, a, is an excellent tool. But if tool. you have a high suspicion, sure. remember that you only see the first part of the ascending aorta, which, which often misses the maximum diameter of the thoracic aorta mm -hmm. with echo in a large majority of patients. So if you're even suspicious on echo, I think you have to get tomographic imaging with CT or MRI to scan the whole aorta. Yeah. I think that's critical. Echo might be a nice first step, but they're definitely, they're complementary, they're not competitive sort of different methods of imaging. But how often? Again, going back to the initial size, if it is only four centimeters, and if you have previous imaging to compare to, and if we can establish that it's been stable for a few years, then you could see them annually. If the size is more than four and a half centimeters, then you would want to be seeing them more soon, perhaps every six months. Again, if it's a family history where they had dissection or smaller sizes, then you want to be more aggressive. So it's, it's, it all depends on the initial presentation, family history, if they had a prior dissection in the family at smaller size. So that's what determines the interval of follow-up. So typically, we, and, and we kind of, I think, share the same ideas, yeah. right? Yeah. Many of us in, in the cardioaortic sort of subspecialty in our group, typically what we do is like to and, and it, sometimes it's even just to put the patient's Easy. mind at ease a little bit. Yeah. We make sure we get two imaging studies that were that are comparable, that are within six months of each other. Right. And then you know what and the trajectory you, is. You can establish some sense right. of stability, and then you come up with a plan based on all those other features. Absolutely. In fact, patients prefer that we do that. Uh, and they, their, their mind is a lot more at ease well, if you're even, taking it seriously. Yeah, they'll even ask you six months too long. <laughs> You know, so, yeah. They would want to be here every now, month. In a lot of diseases, you know, surgery has come to be done earlier and earlier because as you've improved surgical technique and you've lowered morbidity and mortality, then, you know, it's, it's done earlier. Is that true in aortic disease as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the one thing that, um, that's important to understand is Certainly recognizing the limitations of our ability to predict the natural history of any one mm -hmm. patient's aortic aneurysm disease has to be balanced against an individual center's experience with surgical outcomes. You do a lot of these surgeries. We're, we do a ton. We, How many do you do a year? So um, in, in the aorta center at the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute, we operate in over 1,200 aortas a year, and over 800 of them are thoracic, thoracic. Yeah. Is that the biggest center in the world? Pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of centers in China that operate on a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> if you operate on them. So yeah. Yeah. obviously, having that level of experience has driven down you know, the complications of surgery, and so you can be reasonably aggressive. Yes. Uh, obviously, the cost of waiting too long can be death. Yeah, serious complications in performing more in emergency surgery, which is which has much higher complication rate doing, than doing an elective surgery. Now, I'd like to turn, uh, you know, to the issue of, of the approach, the surgical approach. Um, obviously, these things can vary from simple to complex. Um, what are some of the innovations that are really driving, uh, you know, how surgery is being done for these people? Um, 
Well, that's something I could talk about for the entire time. And I'm sure you do all the time. I'm sure. But I, I would say simply, um, it really it, it depends on the segment of the aorta, and we are getting better in every way. So yes. in the aortic root, which is the most complex section of the aorta, we are now offering valve-preserving kinds of operations. So kindly doing over 100 of them a year in our center, and we'll even offer it to you know patients who are in their seventh decade and beyond, because we can do that really safely. What do you mean by valve preserving? Uh, a root replacement with a reimplantation of the valve. So the, we replace that whole aorta right to the inside the left ventricular outflow tract, we reimplant the coronary arteries, but instead of giving them a prosthetic valve, we save their native valve and put it inside a, as I say, a happier home. Yeah. So it's in a new graft. That's a complex operation that's not offered any everywhere, uh, but uh, is very common here, and we now do it consistently with, ex with excellent expertise and predictability about our ability to save the valve, which changes the sort of planning of when to operate, because now we're not worried about giving them the, prosthetic the issues that are, that are associated with a prosthetic. Yeah. So that's a great innovation. That's not really minimally invasive. On the other hand, when we're talking about the downstream aorta, the descending aorta, we almost are predominantly teach, you know, treating those aortas with endovascular therapies. We're delivering devices percutaneously. We've got a whole bunch of devices that are actively in trial that have branches built into them for the aortic arch and the thoracal abdominal segment. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of exciting technology on that, and we're, we're about to enroll our first patient with a novel device even for the ascending aorta uh, dissection. So I think that um, by you know, bringing all these new technologies and innovations from, from the way we do open surgery better to the way we do endosurgery better, uh, we can treat this disease safer and uh, and, and, and really um, change the natural history of it. Yeah, and another innovation that we're also doing is in connective tissue diseases where most people have always thought surgery is the only option. We are using endovascular therapies in those patients too. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we've gained this, you know, we've taken a different look at it. We're not just looking at aortic disease like, yeah, there's this one thing that's going to, you know, kill you tomorrow. We're going to fix it and then disappear. We're giving patients, or, or you know, a, a lifelong sort of approach to the disease, understanding that it is this chronic degenerative process. And it like may recur somewhere else. Absolutely. <laughs> and so by um, using innovations in our imaging suite, yep. so we minimize radiation exposure, we optimize sort of the contrast timing and our interpretation skills and everything else, um, we can offer combinations of therapies or hybrid therapies even our connective tissue patients will get an open surgery for one part of their operation yeah. but during that time we're thinking about what the next one might look like so we set something up so that we have a place to land a stent graft in the, event the second that they stage go on to need a second or third or fourth stage down the road uh, what are the uh, what are the outcomes so how, how well do these patients do with this disorder obviously I'm sure it depends on what you know the a lot of factors but overall for, so an elective, for an elective ascending or aortic root replacement, our mortality is almost less than 1%. Oh, it's, yeah, it's definitely less. Um, yeah. In, in several big series we've published, um, for example, in, in patients with bicuspid aortopathy, mortality has been 0.25% with a stroke rate less than 1% as well. Yeah. So combined stroke and death of less than 1% for these patients. Right. Well, so with all these innovations in diagnosis and in therapy, the prognosis has really gotten better for these people over the last few years. That is excellent. Um, in Marfan syndrome patients, you could almost tell them that they have a normal life expectancy because we are recognizing the disease early on. We are treating them early on. 
with excellent outcomes and with continued long-term follow-up, their outcomes are excellent. Yeah, yeah, we're actually, um, you know, again with that broad eye uh, to this disease, it's, it, it's. I'm very optimistic about where we've come. We're even doing research now that's focusing on lifestyle, you know, and quality of life, because we want to not only want to make them live longer, we want to make them live better. We're trying to understand specifically how much exercise can someone do when they have this mm-hmm. diagnosis. We don't have hard objective answers, but we're working on ways to, to figure it out. Yeah. Well, thank you both for uh, bringing us up to speed on this really important disease. Thank you so and, much. Uh, thank you all uh, for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.